Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Since its establishment in 1992, the 340B program has afforded hospitals and clinics throughout the country with price discounts, with the goal to expand access to care and medications for the most vulnerable patients. The 340B program has recently come under scrutiny, largely because it's being challenged by operational and regulatory requirements. Dr. Dylan Kozaski, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, explores 340B concerns and outlines potential consequences if changes to the program happen. In 2019, as you can see on the graph here, nearly $30 billion were spent on drug purchases under the 340B program, representing a 23% increase from the preceding year and roughly 6% of total drug costs in the United States. Therefore, it is important for health providers such as yourself to understand the intent of this program and ways in which we can work to maintain it to serve the benefits of our patients. For today's presentation, we'll focus on three primary learning objectives to identify the purpose of 340B, evaluate the role of 340B contract pharmacies, and to review some current challenges facing the 340B program and some potential consequences. So I'd like to first start with what is 340B? Essentially, this is a program that was established in 1992 and is now overseen by the Depo Department of Health and Human Services, and more specifically, HRSA, Health Resources and Services Administration, in effort to stretch scarce federal resources as far as possible to reach more el eligible patients and provide comprehensive services. So in layman terms, essentially, this is an uh, agreement between manufacturers and this program in order to get their medications covered under these government insurances, they would need to provide these favorable prices to certain covered entities. And as you can see on the side there, there are various stakeholders involved in this program, including Medicaid, manufacturers, patients, and covered entities. Covered entities may appear in different forms, both hospital and non-hospital uh, institutions. This is a list of um, categorizations which hospitals can affiliate as under the 340B program. And as a part of their eligibility, they also will be evaluated for their Medicare DISH patient percentage, which essentially is a factor using this uh, equation, as you can see there. It's, but it's a factor of inpatient days, both total patient days, Medicare Part A days, and then uh, patient days that are uh, made up of patients that are Medicaid or on Medicare insurance receiving supplemental security income. For completeness, I've also included a list here of some of the non-hospital covered entities, um, including Ryan White Care Act clinics, hemophilia treatment centers, sexually transmitted disease clinics, and various others. And these are uh, programs which operate on a grantee basis and are providing services specific to um, their affiliation. Under this program, these covered entities are awarded 340B pricing, again, by the manufacturer, and to attain discounted drugs for outpatient prescriptions. Note that covered drugs are being uh, offered at the best price under this program and are acquired through the typical wholesaler, which the covered entity would already have an arrangement with. 
Manufacturers are not allowed to charge over what's a previously established 340B ceiling price. The ceiling price is determined by HRSA and essentially is um, calculated by looking at the average manufacturer price minus some unit rebate amount. And that ceiling price has most recently become available for covered entities to evaluate on an annual basis um, with the OPEA system that was uh, published in April of 2019. Note also, though, that hospitals are not restricted to paying the, the uh, 340B ceiling price. They do have the ability to negotiate for sub-ceiling prices. As for this program, there are also patient requirements, and this comes in a few different facets. First, the patient and the covered entity have to have a relationship such that the covered entity maintains records of the patient's care. There also must be a provider and covered entity relationship in that the provider must be either employed by the covered entity or they must be under some sort of contractual arrangement with a covered entity such that the responsibility of the care remains with that covered entity. And in the case of federal grantees, like we saw with uh, some of the non-hospital clinic areas like the Ryan White's Care Clinic, um, those services being provided to these patients must be in alignment for which, uh, in alignment with which the grant funding was provided. I've also made a note here at the bottom that to call out that patients are not eligible if they're only receiving healthcare services that include dispensing services. And that will become important as we evaluate the role of 340B contract pharmacies. Under this program, we run the risk of duplicate discounts. So there are certain billing requirements associated with the program as well. As an introduction, duplicate discounts essentially are when we have manufacturers that are paying Medicaid rebates after a claim had been submitted and the prescription had been received by the patient, in addition to offering 340B pricing for a product on that same claim. So essentially, you can think of this as like a dual taxation on the manufacturer both on the front end as they're selling the drug to the wholesaler and to the covered entity, and on the back end in the form of a rebate. Therefore, annually, each covered entity will need to determine if they want to either carve in or carve out their Medicaid patients from their 340B program. And essentially, that means whether or not they want to offer 340B products to Medicaid patients. To provide a brief history of the 340B program, I want to first start in 1990 when they created the Medicaid Drug Rebate Program, or MDRP. And it's important to note that because that is where the conflict with duplicate discounts can arise. In 1992, Section 340B of the Public Health Service Act created the 340B program. In 1994, it was further expanded and HRSA allowed 340B hospitals to include off-campus outpatient sites, otherwise known as child sites. In 1996, HRSA allowed covered entities to contract with one off-site pharmacy to dispense medications to patients. And that introduces the role of these contract pharmacies. So in 1996, when this uh, was first arranged, many patients and many hospitals were not able to really get the full value of this program because certain covered entities did not have the ability to dispense medications. They may have only had an inpatient service, as that's how their eligibility was determined. So really, this restricted the value of the program, so they allowed covered entities to contract with one, typically a local independent pharmacy, to dispense outpatient drugs so the patients could then see the benefit of the reduced pricing. 
In essence, contract pharmacies are an extension of these covered entities in a way that they are um, contracted and receive some sort of negotiated fees on behalf of the covered entities but are serving out the mission of that covered entity. Nowadays, more than 80% of 340B hospitals utilize contract pharmacy relationships. So I understand that this can be a challenging thing to kind of wrap our minds around as we're trying to follow the product flow, the contractual agreements, as well as the finances. So I've put together uh, this diagram here with reference to the Drug Channels Institute that uh, really, I think, nicely outlines how this arrangement can be set up. So I'd like to first take a look at the product movement. So as we know, the drugs are manufactured at the manufacturer in the top right. They'll ship those drugs to a wholesaler, which has already established a relationship with a contract pharmacy, and they would receive, be receiving their typical treat, uh, deliveries. They might dispense a prescription to a patient at that time, not necessarily knowing if it's 340B eligible or not, but utilizing the contract agreements between the disproportionate share hospital, in this case, which would serve as that covered entity under the program, and a split billing vendor, they can identify if this would be a 340B eligible claim. And so in this case, the split billing vendor would be um, contracted with the disproportionate share hospital, the contract pharmacy, in a way that they are um, basically setting up the wholesaler to replenish the stock of the previously dispensed uh, product. Following the finances of this arrangement, we'll start in the bottom uh, bottom part of this depiction in the bottom right where we have the inflow of um, payment coming in the form of a co-payment from the patient and the pharmacy reimbursement. In this case, for 340B eligible claims, the contract pharmacy would um, hand off that reimbursement to the split billing vendor and take their share of whatever negotiated fees they may have had based on their contract relationship. Uh, typically, in the early, early years, this would be in the form of like a dispensing fee. The split billing vendor would then uh, share, take their share for their services in identifying um, the 340B eligible claims and share the reimbursement with the disproportionate share hospital. In this case, too, the uh, covered entity or disproportionate share hospital is going to be able to purchase the 340B discounted product from the manufacturer, and they actually make that payment directly to the wholesaler as they have their own account set up with them in order to supply the product back to the contract pharmacy. On the far right, you can see we've got this dotted line uh, indicating rebates. And I've separated that because I, I want to put into perspective the risk of the duplicate discounts, but ultimately um, if this, uh, the rest of this process is ongoing and patients are receiving 340B uh, products, drug rebates uh, being paid out by the manufacturer should not occur. So that's going to bring us to our first audience response question, which is true, a true or false questions. Contract pharmacies must maintain a separate physical inventory for 340B products. And you can submit your answer to pollev.com or using the Poll Everywhere app. Okay, great. I, I agree with the 89% here and that this is false. Uh, based on the previous diagram, this operates more on a revolving inventory where the pharmacy's product is initially dispensed and then replenished from the 340B account that is maintained by the covered entity. So continuing on with the history of the 340B program, jumping forward nearly a decade here to 2010, which was a significant year for this program. 
In many ways, um, first of which was that they expanded the use of contract pharmacies and no longer restricted them to only one contract pharmacy relationship between covered entities. And they now are able to have unlimited contract pharmacies for any one covered entity. In addition to this, the Affordable Care Act extended the 340B program to critical access hospitals, sole community hospitals, rural referral centers, as well as cancer centers. Furthermore, the Affordable Care Act introduced the orphan drug exclusion for 340B, which stated that orphan drugs were not able to be uh, purchased under 340B program uh, in, in this case. And this was further clarified in 2013 to state that the orphan drug exclusion only applied when the orphan drugs were being used for those orphan indications. So if a drug was purchased for something that was not an or considered an orphan disease, um, then in that case, it could be purchased under the 340B program. In 2018, just a handful of years ago, CMS reduced reimbursement for drugs acquired through the 340B program from the previously established ASP plus 6%, which is the average sale price plus 6% of that cost, to an average sale price minus 22%, representing a 22 or 28% swing in the reimbursement. And there's some litigation related to this. Um, and I will note that it doesn't affect all covered entity uh, hospital types, but certainly is a factor um, and one of the things that we'll be talking further about. In 2020, again, a big year for 340B, and we're still in the midst of this, but um, early in 2020, HRSA claimed that they had no statutory authority to enforce the 340B pricing offered by manufacturers to contract pharmacies. And that's really going to be where we focus some of our attention today is in discussing these active 340B challenges, where we'll just talk about the contract pharmacy viability, reimbursement, duplicate discounts, and the enforcement authority. First, beginning with contract pharmacy viability, I'd like to start with, you know, there has been a lot of growth, especially since 2010, when the number of contract pharmacies have rapidly expanded, which has grown the attention of various critics to try and determine where the value of this program is really landing. Initially, hospital pharmacies, as I stated, were contracting with smaller independent pharmacies that had good relationships with both their patients and the providers that were providing services to these patients. Nowadays, Hospitals, on average, contract with 22 distinct pharmacies, and the distance between the covered entity and these contract pharmacies has drastically changed, with the average distance between contract pharmacies and covered entities now being nearly or just over 300 miles. When we look at the potential um, profit for these pharmacies on 340B products compared to non-340B products, we may get some insight as to why this program has rapidly expanded. And looking at 340B products, the estimated average product uh, profit margin would be 72%, 50% higher than the non-340B products. This has certainly grown the attention of chain pharmacies who now represent roughly 67% of all contract pharmacy locations in 2020. And when we think of the purpose of these covered entities serving low-income patients or uninsured patients, they're now faced with trying to negotiate contractual relationships with large chains that have a lot of influence as they're negotiating these, uh, these contracts. We're also faced with vertical integration, not only specific to 340B program, but throughout healthcare, in which case we have companies that own their own PBMs, their own health plans, their own pharmacies, and even their own split billing firms. So there's a lot of vertical integration that may uh, runs the risk of sharing profits within their own system rather than 
sharing that with the patients. This graph here, I think, clearly defines the rapid expansion that we've seen with the 340B program and contract pharmacy locations, growing over 4,000% in this last decade. On the right here, again, reiterates the percentage of contract pharmacies that are operated by these large retail chains, primarily Walgreens and CVS. Manufacturers specifically have not taken a liking to the expansion of contract pharmacies and has really come to a head in 2020. When Eli Lilly first announced that they would be limiting Cialis distribution, it would no longer be offering the reduced 340B pricing when these drugs were purchased for replenishment under a contract pharmacy relationship. In September 2020, they took it a step further and expanded their limited distribution policy to other products that they manufacture, including a series of diabetes medications. Merck, Sanofi, and Novartis as well um, have taken a similar approach to Eli Lilly, they run the, um, they claim that they have unintentionally and unknowingly paid out dual duplicate discounts in many cases. And so they're trying to collect claims data for 340B claims from both the covered entities and these contract pharmacies. And in response, if they're not able to supply or unwilling to supply those claims, they have uh, joined in and saying that they would potentially offer less collaborative and more substantially burdensome actions against these contract pharmacy relationships, which also could result in, similar to Eli Lilly, the ineligibility to place replenishment orders for their products. AstraZeneca is right along with them. Uh, they're honoring 340B only for those covered entities that have their own outpatient pharmacies, and in cases where covered entities do not have their own contract pharmacies, or, I'm sorry, their own outpatient pharmacies, they're offering just one contract pharmacy for them to supply their products to at that reduced price. This will bring us to our next challenge facing 340B, which is the continued reimbursement reductions. So as we talk about this, I want to kind of lay the groundwork for where the premise of these re cost reductions are coming from. And it starts with the CMS Social Security Act, Section 1833, which states that CMS will pay out but the amount of payment for a specified outpatient drug shall be equal to the average acquisition cost for that drug for that year. And so this is based on cost data that hospitals are submitting. And initially in 2018, when they proposed to reduce from ASP plus 6% to ASP minus 22.5%, the, the initial district court ruled against them and said that they didn't have enough cost data to support this cost reduction, and it was not necessarily or merely an adjustment. It was a significant swing in the reimbursement rate. And so as a result of that, CMS has taken action to try and collect more data on actual acquisition costs and are surveying hospitals on their, their acquisition costs for 340B products. Most recently, in April of this year, 2020, sorry, this past year, 2020, they had published their most recent survey, which, as many of you are probably familiar, there was a significant uh, pandemic going on during that time. We were in the midst of it. It was very hard uh, to just to maintain our, our usual work um, in a very unusual environment. And so, as you might imagine, CMS recognized that the survey responses they were getting were likely not adequate to support um, or inform future decisions. So 
They did make a modification to the survey to allow hospitals to reply simply stating that overall we're paying whatever the 340B ceiling price is for these products. Um, however, they still received 7% of hospitals that did provide detailed responses where they had cost data for each individual product. What they noticed in evaluating this data is that in some cases, hospitals were paying more than the 340B ceiling prices, um, which raises some concern that there may be some risk of overpayment to these manufacturers for these products. Based on this new cost data, CMS has proposed for calendar year 2020, I'm sorry, 2021, that they would further reduce reimbursement for the 340B products from ASP minus 22.5% to ASP minus 28.7, with the caveat that, again, this does not apply broadly across all covered entities, but certainly is something that uh, raises some concern for reduced reimbursement and effectively um, less benefit for the program for our patients. The next 340B active challenge, and I alluded to this earlier, is the risk of duplicate discounts. So as a reminder, duplicate discounts are when you're, you have a manufacturer that is paying out a Medicaid rebate as well as a 340B pricing. In 2016, Medicaid and the CHIP Care final rule indicated that covered entities are not required to supply the claims data like the manufacturers were requesting. However, they do have to have some sort of system to ensure compliance with the program such that these duplicate discounts are not occurring. And what's important to note about this is this is done in different ways uh, in different states, and it's not prescribed in this rule how it should be done. An attempt to ensure compliance, Medicaid fee-for-service has created this Medicaid exclusion file. And essentially that is a list of covered entities that have opted to carve in their Medicaid patients that are receiving Medicaid fee-for-service. Medicaid-managed care organizations are much more difficult in this case, in which Medicaid is essentially working with third-party vendors to manage their plans, and the same level of claims data is not as readily available. In order to combat duplicate discounts, 340B billing claims have also been investigated. The issue here is oftentimes with 340B claims, as we saw, we're not pro proactively or prospectively able to identify these claims, uh, especially in these contract pharmacy uh, relationships. And so, so um, submitting those billing claims on adjudication can be quite challenging. In essence, the question still remains in each institution every year that is uh, enrolled with the program has to opt in or opt out of the, uh, or carve in or carve out their Medicaid patients from the program. So they may be asking, what, what should we do? Should we carve in or should we carve out? And unfortunately, that question I think is not as simple as, as what we might hope. Um, so I'll just pose a few questions to consider. The first is looking at your payer mix at your institution. What is the fee for service? Uh, what is the number of fee for service patients you have and how many patients are uh, under a managed care organization? Also, furthermore, looking at that, what, how does the reimbursement compare between the fee-for-service and the managed care organizations? And note that there's going to be compliance challenges with each model, and certainly there's going to be costs associated with this as you have to employ the services of different billing analysts, um, billing specialists to try and make sure com compliance is maintained, but that also that the um, optimal cost savings are utilized. The fourth and final uh, 340B challenge that we'll talk about today is the enforcement authority of the program. So 
in 2014, there was a federal court that ruled, HRSA, ruled on HRSA's regulatory ability with regards to this program, stating that they really had authority in three primary areas. First was that they should establish and implement an administrative dispute resolution process that would allow for manufacturers and covered entities alike to submit their 340B disputes. Additionally, they would uh, allow HRSA the authority to impose civil monetary penalties against manufacturers that knowingly and intentionally overcharge a covered entity for a 340B product. And lastly, they are to issue precisely defined standards of methodology for calculating the 340B ceiling prices. And I think we've come a long way in that regard. Um, as I mentioned, there, there was in 2019, Cost a 340B ceiling price data became available to covered entities, which previously was was um, not. And so we've come a long way, but I still think there's probably some opportunities there. And most recently in 2020, as I said, was a big year for uh, 340B authority. There's a guidance on 340B that states that the contents of their document does not in any way have the force and effect of law and are not meant to bind the public. So that was the message that we were hearing kind of in the summertime of 2020. But most recently, in December, on December 30th of 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services issued an advisory opinion that actually kind of took some steps back from that in the midst of these contract pharmacies peeling back their 340B pricing from contract pharmacies. And in this opinion, they state that contract pharmacies are liable to offer the favorable pricing to covered entities, essentially in this fact that they are simply an extension of the covered entity and should be awarded that pricing. HRSA also has been unable to clarify certain program requirements, such as the patient requirements. And as we've seen with the rapid expansion since 2010 in the use of contract pharmacies, the program 340B has really outpaced the ability for HRSA to oversee and ensure compliance with the program. And in 2016, we're only able to audit roughly 2% of pro uh, providing part uh, participating providers. So this raises the question as to what does this mean for future manufacturer compliance? Will this be the stack of cards that falls as manufacturers pull away from this program? So this is going to bring us to our second audience response question. So if again, if you pull out your... Um, your cell phone or your go to polled.ev.com, which of the following is not one of the challenges facing the current state of the 340B program? Is it A, limited drug supply, B, contract pharmacy exclusions, C, reduced reimbursement, or D, operational challenges to limit duplicate discounts? Great response right there. Thank you, everyone. I agree with the majority. Limited drug supply, while certainly um, an issue challenge uh, or that is the health systems and hospitals are challenged with, but not specific to the 340B program. Contract pharmacy exclusion, reduced reimbursement, and duplicate discounts um, are all at risk uh, of challenging the program in addition to the uh, questionable enforcement authority of HRSA. So I'd like to now bring us to a 2020 review that looks to see whether or not the 340B program is serving the original intent established back in 1992 to expand access to these uninsured patients or underserved patients. So this was uh, an analysis that looked at the fiscal year 2018 and looked to identify four objective metrics. First was to evaluate for the Medicaid and Medicare patients that also are on Supplemental Security Income or SSI and determine their patient load. They also wanted to evaluate the Medicaid revenue as a percent of the hospital's operating revenue, 
as well as hospital operating margins. And lastly, in order to ensure expanded access, they wanted to look at the provision of certain services within 340B hospitals. They utilized a series of databases to identify roughly 2,900 hospitals, roughly 43% were 340B sites, and 57% non-340B. They also stratified these hospitals using total patient care costs and used that as a proxy to try and uh, evaluate and compare based on hospital size. When looking at their first metric, which was the patient load, we can see the blue bar graphs here represent 340B sites, and pink being non-340B, we can see that uh, across the board with the left side, quartile one being the largest hospital sites, all the way to quartile four being the smallest hospital sites, that 340B hospitals have 54% higher uninsured or lower income patient load. Looking at um, the Medicaid revenue as one of their second objective metric, they evaluated this in two ways. First was which to look at the proportion of hospitals included in their cohort that were non-340B uh, versus 340B and pair that up against the Medicaid revenue. And we can see again that although 340B hospitals make up a, a lesser portion of participating hospitals in their review, the Medicaid revenue of the 340B hospitals was significantly higher when compared to the, uh, the Medicaid revenue of non-340B sites. Similarly, they evaluated this based on stratified hospital size or that proxy total uh, patient care costs. And we can see a similar message in that look, when looking at all hospitals, 340B sites have two times higher Medicaid revenue as a percentage of their operating revenue. This one was particularly striking to me, which is looking at their operating margins. And so we can see really across the board, these 340B sites are operating on narrow and often even negative margins when serving especially uh, vulnerable patients. When we look at quartile four, the smallest hospital sites, the smallest 340B sites, they're actually operating uh, at an estimated negative 2.9%, where our non-340B hospitals did not seem to be challenged as much by this. And this is likely due to a multitude of factors, but certainly one not to go unrecognized, is the provision of services that potentially are, are necessary, but also potentially less favorable in terms of reimbursement when looking at their payer mix. And that's going to bring us to our discussion on the provision of the services at each of these sites. So utilizing the American Hospital Association survey data, they looked to see what services are being offered at each of these sites, with particular attention to the highly specialized services and essential services, as well as those uh, opportunities to reach out to patients in the community to establish better health and wellness, and to uh, address social determinants of health. In terms of the highly specialized services, they're looking at pediatric and neonatal intensive care, burn care, and uh, those that were designated as certified trauma centers. And this is percentage of 340B hospitals that offer those services. And as we can see, the large majority of them for each of these services are offered in 340B hospitals, representing their, that these specialized services are highly concentrated in 340B hospitals. When looking at essential services, again, across the board with blue being the 340B, we see that a greater percentage of 340B sites do offer these essential services when compared to their non-340B counterparts. 
Behavioral health was of special attention to this review group, and this would include psychiatric emergent services, both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric services, as well as alcohol and chemical dependency programs. Again, a similar message shown here with 340B sites offering these services to these uh, low-income and vulnerable uh, uninsured patients. Community health and wellness, so health fairs, support groups, tobacco cessation programs, and violence prevention are offered to a large percent across both hospitals, both non-340B and 340B, but to slightly greater percentage of 340B hospitals in all, in all cases. As for social determinants of health, more community outreach programs, enrollment assistance for um, different programs, linguistic and translation services, transportation, employment support, and teen outreach. Again, we're all more concentrated in 340B sites. Overall, in this 2020 review, they concluded that 340B hospitals do treat higher percentage of um, Medicaid and Medicare patients that are on su supplemental security income. These 340B hospitals continue to offer these specialized services and essential services despite their unfavorable reimbursement. And in general, the 340B program recognizes inherent challenges of this patient population and is critical to the success of and existence of these covered entities. So that's going to bring us to our third and final poll question here, which is, according to this 2020 review, 340B hospitals are more likely to provide which services when compared to non-340B hospitals? All right. I agree with the majority again here. Both primary health, behavioral health, alcohol and chemical dependencies, and obstetrics are all more likely to be seen based on this review in a 340B hospital compared to non-340B. I'd like to end my conclusion or my discussion today and propose some potential future considerations and opportunities for the 340B program as we move forward. The first would be to improve regulatory oversight and authority. We've seen that, especially in this 2020, uh, the year of 2020, where HRSA has kind of been unclear on exactly what uh, is expected of these covered uh, contracted pharmacy relationships and have kind of went back and forth. And so I think there's opportunity to improve that moving forward, especially with new administration. And also the uh, encouragement or potentially requirement to monitor and track the use of associated benefits. A lot of the complaints from um, opponents of the 340B program is that they're not certain that the reduced price of these 340B products is actually being relayed to the patient and maybe lining the pockets of some of these contractual pharmacies. Uh, despite this, I think the 2020 review does show that uh, the 340B program is expanding access, uh, at least in this, in, per that review. So, um, but I think it'll be better for each covered entity to provide some analysis that shows that and the way that they're providing those services. Program eligibility, I think, is something that could be reevaluated. Understanding that this program has been established now almost three decades ago. And when we think about this, this is established based on an inpatient metric being total patient hospital days and determining a benefit that is for outpatient. So, this again, this program is only used for outpatient prescription drugs. So, does it make sense to continue to use an inpatient uh, hospital metric to determine an outpatient benefit? Improved transparency, I think cost information sharing, as, as I shared before with the OPEA system in 2019, we've made some progress in this, in this respect, but um, from what I understand, that program is kind of hard to navigate, and covered entities 
being new may not be utilizing it in, in a way that ensures they're not overpaying on 340B prices. So again, improved transparency, uh, both from manufacturers, the program, and the covered entities could all be um, improved. So in summary, I think the 340B program serves a vital purpose in healthcare. It does meet the needs of these uninsured and low-income patients. We've seen rapid expansion, especially since 2010 with contractual pharmacy relationships growing. I believe that manufacturer non-compliance um, with offering 340B pricing to contract pharmacies does pose a significant risk to the program and to the patients that they serve. When compared to non-340B hospitals, 340B sites do appear to meet the original intent of the program, but considerable program review and clarification is needed to ensure the compliance and sustainability to serve low-income and uninsured patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Music